The condition of sin's got to be dealt with before the conduct of a believer. The good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. If you expect to become righteous through the law or any other means, you will fall short every time. The person that's sitting next to you that might be an adulterer, that might be a dope addict, you and that person need the same grace of God. What about when I was unfaithful? What about when I overstepped the lines? The things that we say could never be paid for, God has already paid. Nothing can stop us. We're unstoppable. It should be easy to go to heaven and hard to go to heaven. How do you overcome sin? Not by trying harder, but surrendering more. God is completely and wholly righteous. He's perfect in all of his ways. And that when you look at us against the backdrop of who God is, that ultimately we're unrighteous. As a matter of fact, we're not just unrighteous, but we're, we're sinners. Um, we are subject to this fallen nature, uh, but Praise the Lord that we have been saved by grace. As a matter of fact, Paul has been using this terminology throughout the book so far, which is we are justified by grace through faith, the, the, uh, by faith through grace, by faith in Jesus through the grace of God. And I think that, uh, that that's something that we want to hold on to as believers, put that in our pockets, because we'll always have to remember uh, how we have received the gift of salvation from God. And it's uh, by uh, faith through grace. And that's something that Paul's been wanting to talk to us about throughout this chapter. And he really continues to emphasize that in chapter 11. Uh, something else that we see in, in uh, the first 11 chapters is really found in chapters uh, one through eight as well, which is the story of restoration and ultimately how God is faithful to keep his promise. Uh, that's a big part of this. Uh, you know, we need to be encouraged when we hear, even though God's plan sometimes seems unable, it's, it's difficult to reconcile some of the things that we see. Uh, we know that there's a promise and that he has a story of redemption that he is trying to execute. Um, the last two chapters, not 11, but right before Easter, we were in nine and 10. We see that God uh, is sovereign and that sovereignty means really that God possesses supreme or ultimate power, supreme or ultimate power. And that's going to be important to think about as we go into chapter 11, because some things are going to be said where you're going to really have to be able to lean into God's sovereignty. You're, you're really going to have to be able to say, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to say, you know what? God is ultimately powerful and supreme. And, uh, and I believe that, that in chapter 10, we also saw uh, what our response to God's sovereignty is. So here in chapter 11, we're going to pick up talking about you know, not necessarily the topic of God's sovereignty, but needing to trust in God's sovereignty because some of the topics that he does bring up uh, require faith to believe. So we're going to get into chapter 11, uh, but before we do, I want to go ahead and pray. I uh, believe that God can open our hearts and minds and, and help us receive this. So Heavenly Father, we just come before you right now. God, we're so grateful. We're grateful for your gospel. We're grateful for your love. Uh, we're grateful for Jesus. God, would you make your word come to life in us, God, and that it would show us what's inside of us that is not of you, that is, um, that is, that is unrighteous, and that we would uh, turn to you in the hearing of your word, God, and, and that we would find you in the midst of it, God. And I'm praying also uh, that you would help me make this clear. Uh, God, I, I know that your word is perfect as it is, and I don't want to add anything to it that's unnecessary, God. So uh, we, we trust your word. We thank you for your word, and we are ready to receive your word and have great expectation for what your word is going to do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, we're in chapter 11, but I've got to go back to chapter 10 for just a second because in chapter 10, we see the very last verse that Paul closed the chapter with is a, kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big deal. Um, he says, but of Israel, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people, a disobedient and contrary people. And in chapter 11, verse one, he says, I ask them, continuing on, I ask then, has God rejected his people? 
And he says, by no means, absolutely not. That did not happen. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, and God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He says, I am a Jew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Semite of Semites. I'm a card carrier. I, I was a Jew. I've been converted to Christ. So God has not rejected his people. And if you look around the church right now, not our church per se, but at least that church in Rome, they had a large a growing Jewish population of believing Christians. So they're believing Jews. And he's saying, look at them. God's not rejected his people. People are being saved all the time. And he continues, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? He, he references back to an ancient prophet, one of God's prophets that he sent to declare the good news to the nation of Israel before Jesus ever came. And he says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars, your, your places of worship. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. See, Elijah, he's a preacher. And he's under great stress because he's preaching the word faithfully and he's not getting any amens. He's not getting any hallelujahs or preach it or mm, or so good or any of those things, those things that, you know, sometimes we rely on to make sure that we're on the right page. He hears none of it, right? And he's in this place where he's like, God, do they even hear your word that I am preaching? And he cries out to God and God replies to him. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So he's saying God is responding to him. Not all have bowed their knee to the God of this world. Be encouraged. You're, you're preaching the word and it's not going to return void. The good news is going out and some will be saved. And Paul adds, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. See, Paul begins to reiterate the gospel premise of his entire message in the book of Romans and many of other writings that Paul wrote, which is really that we are saved by faith through grace, which we talked about. It's not about works. It's not about what we bring to God as a sacrifice or an offering. Really, the things that, that we bring to God without them coming from a place of having been changed by God and having the righteousness of Christ in us, if we bring anything that's apart from the righteousness of Christ, it's really filthy rags. A lot of times we try to clean ourselves up before we come to God. I did it. I thought, hey, you know, I'll, I'll get there one day. I got some things I need to take care of first though. And, and when I'm in a position where I feel like God can use me or love me or forgive me, then I'll, I'll come. And that lasted a couple years. And I never came. It wasn't until I realized the righteousness of Christ was really the only thing that made me right in God's eyes that I actually bowed my knees before God. And I believe that we need to have that focus. See, God wants to change the condition of our hearts before he expects our conduct to change. Pastor Jordan brought that up in the first chapter of Romans and it's been a thread throughout the whole series. He wants to change our condition, our unrighteousness, and he wants to make us righteous and that everything in our lives, everything that we do will be an overflow of Christ's righteousness in us. Now, I've heard the gospel described this way and I'm, I'm so thankful because... 
You know, we talk about what we bring to God as the filthy, as filthy rags. Um, I'm so thankful for this description. It says, we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe, yet we're more loved and accepted by Christ than we ever dared to hope. Man, let that settle in for a second. So good. Paul re-anchors us to a gospel of grace, but he also shows that Israel misses the mark. In chapter, verse 7, he says, what then? Well, and he tells you what then. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was Israel seeking is the question. They were seeking righteousness. Israel, Israel I believe, had a pure desire for righteousness. What they missed was the path to righteousness, and ultimately they found in their works a lot of self-righteousness. That doesn't mean there were no, Jew, no Jews that had faith in God. There were. Uh, Paul refers to Elijah just a moment ago and says there were at least 7,000. There's a hard number for you right there. So there's at least 7,000. I mean, what else God did, we don't know. But, but there were also many who got trapped in this self-righteous rhythm of works-based religion. And he goes on. And he says, the elect of Israel, that's who he's talking about, the elect of Israel, obtained it, but the rest of Israel were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David, this was the former king of Israel, David, who was a man who was after God's own heart. Paul refers to some things that, that King David said. And, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. That's not very kind. That's not gentle. It's really not. You know, David, David was writing about his enemies in this chapter. He actually wasn't writing about his people, the Jews. He was writing about his enemies and when he says, let your table become a snare, what he was saying is, you know, think about your table. It's where so much blessing comes. It's where you eat and drink and gather with the people you love and you enjoy fellowship and communion. And, and, and there's so much and stories are told there. And, and that's a blessing. And, and David says, let their table, the place of provision, become a snare and a trap. And the reason that Paul refers to David and what David's saying is though David was talking about his enemies and not the Jews, Paul says, well, the Jews have become the enemies of God. And these things are hard for us to receive. We just heard that the Jews have become the enemy of God, but we also heard that it was God that actually gave them a spirit of stupor. And that's really difficult to reconcile. We see this thing where God's almost instigating something that seems to be failure for a people. It seems to be leading them to a, a place of brokenness. And he instigated that, or at least it seems as so when we read this. But I want to bring a little clarity to that. Let's look at some facts. One, there is an elect. We cannot ignore that reality. The word says it. It says it in multiple places throughout the word. An elect is simply a chosen people that are set apart for God's plan and purpose. Um, but what does that really mean? You know, Paul says that God has elected the Jews and that they, the elected remnant, that they found salvation by grace. And we also know that there were Jews who were hardened and rejected God. So there's, there's this God thing happening and then there's this, you know, Jew thing happening. And God apparently withheld from a number of Jews 
At least that's the way it sounds. The ability to have clarity about their coming Messiah, the one that was promised from the foundations of the earth, the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth, the, the Yeshua HaMashiach. He was supposed to come as, as Jesus the Messiah, the, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and, and they were expecting that, that he would come as a conquering king. That's what they were expecting. But we see that they were blinded and deafened to the truth. Now, why would God do something like that? Did God do something like that? I know that this is a place where a lot of people would like to really make some conclusive statements. God this or God that. And I think we get in a very dangerous spot when we begin to declaratively state things about God that are not as clearly laid out in the word based on the way that we feel about those things. And I think that sometimes we conclude on things that are somewhat inconclusive. And this may be one of those things that's a bit inconclusive. Now, I want to give you a little bit more understanding about where I'm coming from, but just so you know, it's a little gray. This is a gray area, and you've got to be okay with there being some gray areas in your faith. As a church, we're resolved to be okay with certain gray areas that, that we see in the Word where there's this and that. It's both ends, and we can't see God being one way or the other. He's, he's so much more infinite than our finite minds, so we're going to be okay with this gray area. And this is the gray area. Some believe that God foreknows, or he knows in advance, which people will freely accept or reject him, and then in their free decision-making, that their free will decision will lead them then to a rejection or salvation. And there's this idea that, that each person has the individual freedom to choose every aspect of the way they'll live their lives. And that's what some believe. And others believe that God foreordains, that he knows in advance, but also has a plan in regards to what he knows. And he directs every step of every person. And he causes every person in every step that he's directing to make certain decisions to accomplish his plan. Some people believe that way and that, that in that he's leading those people to hardening or to salvation. What do we see in the word? That's ultimately what we have to land on. It's not what we feel our God would or wouldn't do. What do we see in the word? And what we see in the word is that he does both of those things. As far as we can tell. Does God know Israel would reject him and so then he hardens them? Or does God plan to harden Israel in order to accomplish his will and then ultimately he had no choice? In the words of my beloved lead pastor. <laughs> we can't say because the word demonstrates both of these things. Now, I do know this, when considering the big picture of God's plan, it becomes a whole lot easier to accept either one of those scenarios. And I also know this, that if you will be okay with God being sovereign, if you'll be okay with God not being limited by what you think God should be, if you'll be okay not putting God in a box and you'll allow him to be the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, you'll allow him to be the king of kings, you'll allow him to be Lord of your life, then you'll just say, okay, Lord, I don't understand all of these things. And maybe I never will until I stand before you. And maybe even then I won't, but I'll trust you nonetheless. I love how Miss Jan just said, I trust him. See, we got to confess these things with our mouths. That, that needs to be a habit that we adopt. 
Paul asks a big question that leads to big answers, and that ultimately helps us see our big God and his big plan for humanity. Verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, absolutely not. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. He wants to make them jelly. Now, if their trespasses mean riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? I'm a parent. I've got kids at home, and some of you are kids, so you're not in this situation yet, but you are a kid, so you can probably relate. Some of you are parents, and, and you have kids. We've bought gifts for some of our kids at times, and, and we give those gifts with great expectation that the kid is going to receive the gift and be overjoyed with our thoughtfulness, our consideration, our generosity. And the kid's like, That's... and they set it down and they go back and do whatever it was that they wanted to do with no gratitude. <laughs> You're like, why did I spend that money? But what happens is that toy or that gift or whatever sitting there, and, and if you've got a couple kids in the home, then you'll know that one of your other kids is going to come along and say, <gasps> and they're going to love that toy. And they're going, to, they're going to be playing with that toy and they're going to embrace the gift and they're so thankful. Now, what happens to the one who was originally supposed to receive the gift? They get jelly. They come back around like, That's mine. That's, that's mine. Give that back. And all of a sudden, you know, it's a fight. Pillows are flying everywhere. Shirts coming off. It's crazy. And what does the parent do? The parent comes over and says, oh, hold on, hold on. You rejected that gift. You didn't want that gift. You relinquished your right to that gift, technically. I mean, you clearly decided you don't want that gift. You threw it in, in a trash heap. All right? And he comes along and wants it. Well, I'm not going to say you can never use that gift. I'm not going to say that. But I'm also not going to take this gift away from them. Why don't you guys, in a spirit of generosity and caring for one another, share the gift. <laughs> Teaching moments everywhere. Hopefully I don't miss them. So the rejection of the gift of salvation by Israel has become beneficial for the Gentile. The same way the rejection of that gift for the first child became beneficial for the second. And the Jews got jelly, and now they want what the Gentiles have. And now the awesome thing about it is the Jews and the Gentiles both can be included in the whole family of God benefits. How much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, while that's true, Paul does clearly desire the Jews to know Jesus. And this should be a very compelling reason for us to faithfully proclaim the good news of Jesus, not only to Gentiles, but also to the Jews. You're like, I don't know any Jews. And I'm like, I don't know many either. I mean, my mom was one. I'm kind of half Jew, but I'm like the only Jew I know. So, <laughs> hey, man, you want to know about the gospel? That, that sounds nice. What do you think about that? Man, I got a lot to say about it. You ready for this? I heard you talk a lot. You, you really want to tell me right now? I don't know how much time I got. You're going to have to buy me coffee or lunch or something. I'll, I'll buy you coffee or lunch. You know, that's how they, I was excessive. Sorry. A little over the top. Just touch. All right. So anyway, 
Paul does want the Jews to know salvation. And really, we also know that the Jews are not just a picture of, of the Jewish people, but they're also a picture of, of lost people. We should have a, a burden for the Jews. We should be prayerful for the Jews. If you don't know a Jew, start praying for Israel. Pray for Jerusalem. Start praying that Jews would come into salvation because ultimately their full inclusion means that much more for the Gentile. And it really, you know, reflects a big part of God's plan that he would like to see Jews come to salvation. But also let's have hearts for the lost. Now I, speaking to the Gentiles in verse 13, and as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation or the process of kind of being realigned with God, if, if the rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead, resurrection? See, that word magnify, I think that's the key here. What is it that Paul's trying to magnify? Well, in this time, you know, not only in Rome, but all over the Mediterranean basin and all these churches that Paul and other church leaders have been planting and pouring their lives into and equipping saints for the work of the ministry all over the place, things that are pretty amazing are happening. If you look in the book of Acts, you see that there were thousands being added to the church. You see that miracles are being done. Healing is taking place. People are, are, are seeing Christ for the first time and it's changing their lives. And then we see in Acts chapter two specifically where those people are you know, coming together in genuine Christian community and they're sitting down at the table with one another and they're breaking bread and they're, they're praying together and believing for God to do great things in their lives and they're, they're submitted to the, the teaching of the word of God and they're just growing in grace and truth and, and it's, it's amazing. And Paul says that right there, that's attractive. He says that right there, I know I want to magnify that because that is part of the reason why people want to belong to the body of Christ. That is part of the reason why people want to know Christ because of, of, of having the benefit of being part of Christ's body and all that that means and all that that encompasses. And he says, I'm going to magnify that. We need to magnify that. So we have to ask ourselves that question. In our lives, when people look from the outside in, do they see us as loving one another well? You know, the word says that, that they'll know that we are his by the love that we have for one another. Do they see us loving one another well, engaging in hospitality well, sitting at the table, breaking bread together, knowing one another and having fellowship and, and communion and intimacy? Are we, do, do they see something that they're jealous of, the way that we love God and love others? Do they want that in their lives? We have to ask ourselves that question about the people that see us living. I think Paul, he says he wants to magnify that ministry and I would like to magnify that ministry in my own life. I hope you feel the same. Verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in, which later we're going to find another word that he uses in regards to grafted in, it means adopted. If you, a wild olive shoot, were adopted or grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root. The root supports you. Paul uses a very relevant illustration for them. And maybe 
Maybe some of you are familiar with some horticulture type stuff, but the idea of attaching a branch to a rootstock and mending that branch into that tree so that that tree and that branch become one. And now that branch that was grafted in begins to bear fruit. Very interesting if you've never looked at what grafting really is. And Paul uses this illustration. He speaks of how the wild branch, who are the Gentiles, are grafted in. They become one with the root stock and that they'll gain their life from the root of this cultivated tree. Now, later he calls that unnatural because in actual uh, process of grafting, you actually take a mature cultivated branch and graft that into a wild rootstock because the wild rootstock is going to have a little bit hardier root. Hasn't, it's not as aged. It's not as old. And Paul says, basically, hey, God does things differently than you think he should. <laughs> but this illustration is true nonetheless. And while the wild branch is dependent upon the root rather than the root being dependent upon the branch, he's, he's really wanting them to refer to the root and say, hey, who, what is this root? I believe and, and we see many that also believe that the root is Christ, of course. Christ is what we're being grafted into as Gentiles or unbelieving Jews becoming you know, believers. They're grafted into Christ. But more specifically, a lot of theologians believe that this root is not just Christ, but it's also the promise the covenant that was made between God and Abraham. And we are not only grafted into Christ, but we're grafted into this covenant that's existed since like almost the beginning of God's interaction with his people. So much heritage there, so much lineage there. And Abraham, that covenant that he received, he received through faith. And now we receive the process of being made one with the family of God the same way through faith. Now, he continues on in verse 18, and basically it's like, rather than being arrogant, he kind of says, let's, let's look at how we ought to be. <laughs> then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. There's a confession. Hey man, it cost them everything so I could be part of this thing. Maybe they didn't choose that. Maybe they did, but hey, either way, I've got an attitude of gratitude. And he says, remember where you come from. And then he says in verse 20, that is true. They were. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. It's like, hey, remember how you were brought into the family of God, how you became a member of the body of Christ. Don't forget. It's not through your works so that you might boast, but through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. And fear is the beginning of all wisdom. And Paul points us to the greater plan in this whole thing, he says the branches were broken off for a reason. Ultimately, the graft the Gentiles in. So don't be proud and fear God. I think those are great instructions for believers to live by today. Don't be proud. Fear God. I mean, you could wave that banner over your life. Don't be proud. Fear God. 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, we know he cut them off, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided that you, those Gentiles being saved and those remnant of, of the Jews, provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Regarding God's kindness and severity, we know that God's love covers a multitude of sins. We know that his goodness and mercy will follow us for all the days of our lives. We know that his kindness draws men to repentance. We know these things about God. He is kind. But here we also see the fact that he is severe being presented. This contrast, 
What do we do with that? How do we navigate that tension? I believe that we cannot separate God's kindness from his severity the same way that we cannot separate God's justice from his mercy, the same way that we cannot separate his tenderness from his toughness, nor can we separate his friendship from his fierceness. We love Jesus as friend, but we struggle with Jesus as fierce king, lion, coming back to rule and reign with a scepter. Now, I'm telling you, we shouldn't only look at his kind side. We've got to see the, the, the multifaceted nature of God. But I'm also saying we don't want to get too trapped in looking at God's severe side either. God, God could you know, easily you know, come off as very you know, angry all the time and severe all the time. He's like, why do you do the things you do? Repent. I don't know that that's God's heart or the way that he communicates about it. He is severe, but he's also kind. We can't get too extreme with either of those perspectives. When we get too extreme in our view with God, it's bad for our faith. If we begin to become too extreme, we're always focusing on his severity, we're always focusing on his kindness, though that should be something that we can continue to remember. It can cause us to forget who God truly is. And I think we struggle with that severity aspect of who God is. I know I have. I can't serve a God like that. What do I do with that? You know, if the idea of God's severity rubs you the wrong way, why don't we consider the severity that God endured himself in order to withhold his severity from you? It cost him his own son. He gave his son as a sacrifice. This is severe. He gave himself. It's very severe. And the injustices suffered by his own son were very severe, physically, emotionally, spiritually. He was separated from the love of the father because he was carrying the weight of your and my sin. It's severe. But he did it so that you could experience the fullness of his forgiveness and his love, his kindness. So we want to embrace the severity of God because it's the very thing that brought wholeness to you providing that you are in Christ. Verse 23, and even they, the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, if they begin to believe, will be grafted back in for God has the power to graft them in again. God is sovereign. And here we see a display of God's kindness. He can do it. And if they'll continue in, um, uh, if they won't continue in unbelief, if they'll put their trust in Jesus, he'll be kind. For if you, the Gentiles, were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature. That was the thing I was talking about. Into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Man, if a wild olive branch can fit, so can the cultivated one, right? Surely. Lest you be wise in your own sight. He basically is like, so you don't get all big headed about this whole thing. So you don't get top heavy. <laughs> Let me clear some things up for you, Okay. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And this word mystery, mysterion in the Greek, and Paul uses this throughout the New Testament upwards of 25 or 27 times, something like that. He uses it a lot. And, and Paul uses this word, and he's really saying that, you know, mystery, we're often thinking of something that's incomprehensible. And while this text and these ideas might be complex, they're not incomprehensible. And, and what Paul wants to do is let you know that this, this is able to be understood through faith. And I'm going to actually 
reveal the mystery. What the mystery is, is it's something that was once concealed that is not now being revealed. And he says the mystery is this, a partial hardening, which is a temporary blinding, has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Jesus wants to save the Gentiles and then release the Jews to, for full inclusion. It seems to be that way. And in this way, which is, we know, the way of grace that leads to faith in Jesus, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, and he refers to another prophet, the prophet Isaiah, and he was another preacher in Old Testament times that was declaring the word of God. And, 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 and the prophet Isaiah is declaring to Israel that the deliverer Jesus will come from Zion. That's, that's Jerusalem. And he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, which is Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He said, I'm going to fulfill every promise I ever made because I'm faithful. So the mystery is, well, yeah, it says that all Israel will be saved at some point. Now, who is all Israel? All Israel, as far as we can understand, we can say this declaratively, all Israel is at least the Jews who believe, the Jews who were cut off at one time, yet God in his kindness said, I will re restore them as a remnant to my people. It's them. And then it's Gentiles who were and still are being grafted in. So these are the true Jews that Paul talked about in the end of chapter two, not circumcision outwardly, but circumcision of the heart inwardly. People who are now part of the promise, the true Jew, that's all Israel. Paul shares Isaiah's prophecy of the coming salvation that had been being prophesied for hundreds and really even thousands of years in the word. We see that Jesus was being talked about. And Isaiah says, hey, look, you know, the deliverer is coming. His name is Jesus. Restoration of God's people is going to happen and a covenant with his people will be fulfilled. Verse 28, he says, I'm preaching the gospel. As the gospel as regards the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies of God because they haven't received the gospel yet. For your sake, your sake and mine. The Jews didn't set out to be enemies of God, though. That wasn't their plan. They have a heart to, to be an enemy of God. They just, they don't even believe that they are, actually. They believe they're, they're serving God, right? But they found themselves in their pursuit of righteousness, missing their Messiah, missing Jesus, because... They were expecting a conquering king, yet he's this suffering servant. That's not the king I was expecting. They missed the Messiah, and they became self-righteous in their works. And we can do that too. And we can begin to live this moral Christianity, where it's not the righteousness of Christ producing fruit in our lives, and that our work comes from that, but where we're literally doing good works in hopes to appease God. And that is self-righteous and even idolatrous. And Paul carries on, he says, but as regards election, kindness again, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They still have an opportunity to receive and benefit from the promise and all that that entails. And the cool thing that we know about that is that when we become a true Jew and we are grafted in to the root, we also have these gifts and calling of God that are irrevocable on our lives. And that is something to celebrate. For just as you, the Gentile, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of the Jews' disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, the Jews also may now receive mercy. See, the Jews' disobedience consequently separated them from God. And that's our story. Our disobedience 
can separate us. And if we're still in our disobedience, our rejection of God, our rebellion, our unforgiveness, our unrepentance, if we're still in that, we are separate from God. God in his mercy has an eternal plan to restore his covenant people to himself. And he would desire for you to be part of that restoration, to become part of his covenant people. He wants to restore lives. He wants to save you. 32, for God has consigned to all disobedience. We learned early in Romans that we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. But he has mercy on all. How do we receive his mercy? Well, his mercy on your life is really dependent on a couple things. One, it's that you surrender to him, that you surrender to his lordship, and also that you believe in your heart that he is who he says he is and that he came to save you and that you repent from your sin and that you receive his forgiveness. That's how you receive his mercy. You want God's kindness? You're mad about his severity? Accept his kindness then. Accept it and you'll know a kind God. Now, Paul he knows God's nature and he celebrates God's characteristics here in these last few verses. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable, how impossible basically to understand or interpret his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, you know, the message of the gospel is that we are made right in God's eyes by faith through grace. To understand and believe some of these things, it requires faith. It has to go past your intellect. It has to go past your reasoning. It has to go past your desire for a specific type of God. It has to go to this place that's deep within your heart that God himself can draw out of you, that he's really drawing out of you right now, this faith for you to believe him at his word that you would become part of what it is that he desires you to become part of, his family. That happens by faith. And it's through grace, which is the gift. So what's the gift? It's salvation. It's the work of Jesus on the cross. It's what he accomplished by carrying the weight of your sin. It's what he accomplished when he rose from the grave three days later to not only demonstrate that he is God, but that he is the power to not only raise himself from the grave, but he can raise you and everybody else from the grave too. When you put your trust in him, your life song becomes to him be the glory forever. Amen. See, I believe that we are so focused on the moment that we forget that ultimately we live for his glory and we live for eternity. And the decisions that we make really need to be based primarily on eternity and everything else can kind of surround that. And right now you have an internal decision to make. Are you going to put your trust in Jesus are you going to receive the free gift of salvation? Are you going to realize that it's from him and in him and through him that all things that have any worth or value in your life flow to and from? If you'll put your trust in that, you'll know forgiveness and you too can be part of the family of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now. And God, we are thankful that you have made a way. God, there are people in this room right now that that are being stirred to faith by you. God, I'm asking that you would help them see past their reasoning and their intellect 
help them see past their presuppositions, their ideas of what should and shouldn't be. And they would simply say, I want you, Jesus. If you're in this room right now and that's you and you're saying, I want Jesus. I want to make him the Lord of my life, not just my savior. I need that. I need him to save me. I need his forgiveness, but I want him to even be my Lord. I want him to be my king. I surrender. This is your prayer. If you desire Jesus to be your Lord and your savior, I surrender Jesus. I surrender. I I confess that you are sovereign and I submit to that. Whatever that means, we're going to work that out together, God, but I surrender to it. I'm asking that you would forgive me of my sin. And I trust that in the power of the resurrection, you have the ability to resurrect me to the newness of life right now. And I am leaning into that. I'm asking that you take everything that I've ever done, be it good or bad, God, and, 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 and just pour your righteousness into me. Forgive me, heal me, make me whole. In Jesus' name, amen. And for the rest of us, God, we come before you right now. We wanna be humble. And and we even want to have a reverent fear for you, God, for who you are. And we believe that you're gonna give us wisdom as your people. Even those that just prayed that prayer, they're now part of the family of God. We're asking for wisdom, God. As your church, God, would you make things clear to us so that we can live a life that is honoring to you, that brings you glory and that is good for us. A life that provokes others to jealousy, that they would desire what we have. God, that, that we would be set like a flint on you and your eternal promises, on heaven, on Jesus, on on, on the joy of the salvation that you have brought to our lives. Let us be set on that, God, and that everything that we do, everything that we say, and everything that we know will be an overflow of that. We thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give it up for God right now. He's faithful and he's saving. Northwood Church is one church with multiple locations. Uh, We have locations in Gulfport, Wiggins, and Long Beach, and we'd love to see you there. If you enjoyed this message and want to get more info on who we are, just head over to northwood.tv. And once you're there, you can check out all our past sermons and all the things that we're doing in South Mississippi. And even to, to give to support those efforts of reaching more people. Be sure to connect with us on social media to stay up to date with everything happening around Northwood Church. Thanks for watching. We hope to see you soon.